standard issue for all women. Hey guys, since it was International Men's Day on Tuesday, we have been running this week an entire week series of men chatting because we don't think they get enough opportunities in day-to-day life. Lols. If you've not been tuning in this week, you have missed so much stuff, but the good news is it is still there for you to find with your ears and enjoy. Hannah and Mickey spoke to Patterson Joseph, star of The Old Vicks, A Christmas Carol, about the timeless appeal of Dickens' peep show, The Leftovers, and why he won't be answering any more questions about being an actor of colour. Hannah and I chatted to The Chief Dude at BBC News at Six, journalist and author of The Burning Land, George Alagaya, about living through momentous times and the relentlessness of the news cycle. And we also spoke to comedy writer and actor Chris Addison and political activist Femi Olawole about the macho state of politics at the moment and many other things. Mickey spoke to Rich Wilson, comedian and host of the excellent podcast Insane in the Men Brain to talk about putting the men into mental health, treating yourself as an ongoing project and the wrong time to helicopter. And I also spoke to Chris Spencer, a.k.a. Cold War Steve, or the man behind Cold War Steve, about finding solace in a hellscape and fighting for the inclusion of Bungle, because someone has got to, haven't they? Still to come, Mick will be chatting to business boss Dan Atkins about his new project, Buses for Homeless. And I am quite literally out of breath. In this episode, I am having a little chat with Lem Sisse, poet, broadcaster and author of The Sunday Times' number one bestseller, My Name Is Why, about his childhood in the care system and listening to others, among other things. And he is such a nice guy and his book is just crazy good. Everyone should really just go and read it immediately, but after you've listened to this, ideally. I hope you enjoy this as much as I enjoyed chatting to him. Hello, Mickey here to tell you how you can find out more about us. And that is if you want to follow us on Twitter. Standard Issue is at Standard Issue UK. I'm at Mixed Noonan. Hannah is at That Dunleavy. And Jen is at Inspire Jen. And you can find out more about our views, opinions and general nonsense if you follow us over there. Look forward to having a natter. Why do I think that International yeah. Men's Day is a very interesting yeah, day? Yeah, why do you think it's an interesting Day. Well, I, I don't actually know why there's an International Men's Day in that men have, pre- prob- men have probably worked it so that most days are men's days. Yes. I mean, that's why there's an International Women's Day? I mean, I kind of agree with you, but at the same time, I guess the point is to highlight that gender inequality is bad for everyone. Oh, Nice. That's, and that's, that's, that's like no, say. that's really good. Sound I like that. Mm. Kaboom! Gender <laughs> in- inequality is bad for everyone. Yes, absolutely. It is. And, and, and all inequality, yeah. not not to take away from gender in- inequality specifically, which is something that people do. Yeah, I mean, shall I do an instruction now? I am joined by poet and broadcaster Lem Sisse. Hello, Lem. Hello, Jen. Thank you very much for joining me. We rhyme. We do. You're Jen, I'm Lem. That's a poem right there, Jen Lem. It's a concrete poem. <laughs> a from, great poem. From the 1950s, Jen Lem, Jen, Jen, Jen Lem, Lem, Jen. And that's it. And then you just walk off stage and leave the audience stunned. And stunned they would be. <laughs> I'm quite sure. <laughs> yes. I met you, Lem, yes. when I was 17 years old. You came to my school and you read some poems to us from your book, 
Morning breaks in the elevator, and you signed a book for me, which was very exciting to 17-year-old Jen studying A-level English. So this is very exciting that I get to interview you. Thank you very much. Total pleasure, Jen. What have you been doing for the last 19 years? <sighs> well, I've been mostly a poet, I guess. I've been mostly a poet. I've sort of like tried to spread my poetry into all of the corners where poetry should be, I guess. Mm-hmm. I have taken the government to court yep. for stealing my family and stuff. Live, I live in London now. I've moved from the north, which is probably where I came across you. Is that right, when you were no, in school? No, I, I lived in Essex. Okay. So you must have been doing a bit of touring. Uh, yeah, no, I did. <laughs> I did I've, you know, I've been reading poetry on stage since I was 18. It's unusual, like all over the world now. So I guess that's what I've been doing in between. That's quite fun. Yeah, it is, actually. I've turns out my life is what I wanted it to be. You know, I wanted to be a poet, and I was, and I am. You have just written, or you've just published back in late August, I think, a new book called My Name Is Why. It's sort of a memoir, I guess, yes, about it is. your early life. Yes. It's, it's a fascinating and, and pretty harrowing story. Would you be able to tell us a little bit about it? First 16 years of my life, I thought my name was Norman. When I was 18, I did not know who my mother was, my father, my sisters, my brothers, my aunts, my uncles. I didn't have a surrogate family, so I didn't have a foster family to fall back on. I had nobody. The only records of me were in files that were held in a data company for the social services. So I spent most of my adult life searching for those files. I made a documentary on Radio 4 in 2010 trying to find them. They said they'd been lost by the Iron Mountain. It's a data holding company, yeah. yeah. So we've gone from pre-data holding companies where things were in written files, yeah. post to data data being from computers, mm. uh, etc. So this company had my paper files and any computer files that were on me and they said they'd lost them. In 2015, I received those files, which documented my entire existence from, from 0 to 18 years of age. In lieu of family, that was very important to me. Okay, in lieu of anybody to say that they remembered me in any particular way, at any particular time, in 18 years, somebody who was relative to me, in lieu of that, in lieu of any family... I had to find my records. I got them finally in 2015. Wow. And the moment I got them, I saw it's all laid out what, what had happened to me. And I had proof. And all family is, at base, is a set of disputed memories between one group of people over a lifetime. All family is, is a set of people, at base taking photographs of each other at the same time and then arguing in the editing suite about which photographs to use in the final version of the film. Family. That's why Christmas Day is sometimes quite difficult. Because mm. everybody has a version of who each other is. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's all right. That's the nature, that's the dysfunction at the heart of all functioning families. I did not have that. Mm. Ergo, or therefore, I had no Christmas dinners. I had no birthdays, I had no plan. Those moments were when I realized how little I had in my past and therefore in my present. 
because birthdays and Christmases are consolidations of the birthdays and Christmases from before. Anyway, all of this is driving me, was driving me mad. Mm. How can you prove to somebody what you don't have when they often don't see it themselves? Mm. The nature of family. So I got the files in 2015, finally, and it's all laid out there, you know, all of the abuse that happened to me, the, the, the fact that I was made invisible in plain sight, there was a report written about me every three months. So I could see within those 18 years that there had been some serious wrongdoings, which left me bereft in a wilderness at 18 with nobody. Given the government was my parent all of my childhood, I took them to court, we settled outside of court, and then the moment that finished, and I won, I started writing the book. So this book is a live product. It's mm. not a sort of retrospective of my life. Mm. It's actually incredibly live. I still can barely look at the actual files, and I have to train myself, I mean, to look at the book, to look at the files in the book, because the files are printed yeah. inside the book, and then my, yeah. my own testimony is alongside them. When I got the files, I knew I was going to take them to court because I was like, you can't hide what you've done to me in, in your own words. Mm. And then the moment I'd got the wonder case, I was like, now I'm going to write the book. When you won the case, I mean, obviously it must have felt like, you know, you must have felt some sort of sense of vindication, I guess. But also, did, it, did you feel like, was it a flat feeling? Was it a bit like, okay, I've, well, all right, well, that's, that's that then. Great, I won. Or, or did you feel sort of buoyed by that? I'm way ahead of them, Jen. They did wrong to me. Mm -hmm. It was my job to prove that they did wrong to me and then to get them to compensate that in some way. I'm way ahead of them. I've moved on. Mm. You know, in the middle of the case, for anybody who's got a big case, I think this is important. Somebody said to me, it's actually a psychologist who was part of the case. Mm. He came off, off the clock. He said this as an aside, and he said he wouldn't normally say this. He said, you might not win this, Lem, but that shouldn't be the point. Mm. He said, you know, learn everything you can from this. Mm. Oh, he said something really specific, actually. He said, he said, you might not win it, but that's not the point. What you're doing is the point. Yeah, of course. And yeah. that, but that wasn't really enlightening to me, you know. Yeah. It's, like, yeah, it's like when I was looking for my family, when I was searching for my birth family, mm. People used to say, oh, it might not be as good as you think it, 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 it'll be, Lem. And I was like, I said to them, do you think it's good? Yeah. You know, do you think that there is some golden familial kind of uh, nirvana yeah. that I'm looking for? Because I'm the boy who was in the children's homes. I know how messy families are. Mm. I am not finding an easy thing by finding my family. In other words, I was ahead of the people who were saying to me, you know, Lem, it might let you down. And likewise, with the court case, I was ahead of them. I was like, look, I've brought you to the table, mm. and you're answerable for what you did to me. Whether we win legally or not is not the matter here. You're scared. Mm. And you're scared because you are having to take responsibility for what you did. I'm good with that. Mm. It's not about me losing this case. Yeah, I think, I, I think there's a... Kind of a point there, like everything you do in life, really, isn't it? You have to know you're doing it for yourself rather than the outcome of it. You have to know that you're happy with having done it, regardless of what 
make come of it. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and the deeper it is in your story, mm. the more likely, hopefully, you are to come to that conclusion. Yeah. Fortunately, I, I've made a career as a writer, and therefore I'm not in some of the desperate straits that some of the people who I was brought up in care were with, and they know who their family is, mm. you know. I mean, you do a lot of work now around sort of people who are in care, work with various charities. The outcome for a lot of people who go through the care system is not a good one. It can be, it can be pretty bleak mm. going forward. Mm. What is it about the system that is so damaging? That's a really good question. And I think the answer is that the system, the institutions that were built to care have become more involved in managing themselves, the institution, than what they were there for. Mm. This then becomes quite horrific, mm. actually, because what, be what becomes important is uh, the building more than the reason that it's there. Mm. Now, if the reason that it's there is for babies and for children, if they become invisible inside that building, then what does it become? It becomes a, a place to, to lock people in. It becomes a place of order. Children are quiet anarchists. That's yeah. teenagers, you know, as, well, as much as babies, you know, and not so quiet anarchists. It's the nature of childhood is to break rules, is to test boundaries. If an institution cannot, that's built for children can't understand, embrace and love that, then it's not fit for purpose. And if it's not fit for purpose for a child, it's a very, very dangerous place to be. Because I, th I think what really struck me reading your book, which is amazing, I felt like I'd been run over afterwards. <laughs> like, That's a great review. Like, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely amazing. Was the, the total absence of care. Really? Yes, absolutely. When you look at the detail, yeah. if you weren't to look at the detail, if you were to look across the road at me, you'd think, oh, that's the boy from the children's home. He's there in Woodfields, or he's there in Gregory Avenue. And, oh, look, he's gone to Wood End. And, do you know what I mean? And it seems that, that what I was trying to say is that, that you can be invisible in plain sight. Mm. If the institution is more concerned with itself than it is with the reason that it was built, then the people it was built for become invisible in plain sight they become judged by how they treat the institution, not on how the institution treats them. When I first went into children's homes, the first thing I wanted was a hug. And I've said this before, but it's the last thing that I got. And then I would be accused of having attachment disorder. Mm. And it is the institution that had attachment disorder. Mm. I didn't. It's funny you say accused of. It's kind of like an accusation of having an attachment. Do you see what I mean? I do. It's, I didn't realise I'd done that. Yeah. That's kind of interesting. Yes, very. Because these labels and diagnoses become almost like uh, criminal records. Well, I mean, it's again, that's that's kind of interesting because where you ended up before you were sort of, you know, released into the mm -hmm. world. Basically, it was a detention centre, wasn't it? It was somewhere where kids who were facing criminal charges would be held, sort of pending. That's right. It was an assessment centre. Oh, okay. They right. couldn't put me in a detention centre because that is purely criminal, okay. or what they had determined as criminal. It was an assessment centre. I had nothing to do with crime. That's not true. I was a teenager. I, I, you know, I was put in an assessment centre 
And a, a wing of that assessment centre, the main wing of that assessment centre, was for remand uh, kids. But they had this other section, which was for kids in care, who were treated exactly the same as the remand kids, but technically they could not be put on remand because remand needed you to have to go to court. Mm. So this was a sort of short, sharp shock treatment for unproven accusations mm. by an organisation that can do that. It was like the, the dustbin of Wigan social services. It's really a violent place, horrible, emotionally uh, violent. I mean, you're, you, reading the book, it seems that your entire childhood really was emotionally That's violent. Right. The, the foster parents who, to all intents and purposes, they sort of took you on from birth pretty yep. much, and to all intents and purposes, they were your parents. Yeah, they were. Yeah. And then at the age of 12, they sort of said... They just got rid. Yeah. They just got rid and put me away and then said it was my fault and then never, uh, never contacted me again. Do you know, most people who are taking drugs, who are drinking underage, who are um, saying unspeakable things to their elders, who are breaking things, who are running away or saying that they're going to run away, who are lying, they're not kids in care. They're our kids. Mm. You know, and when stuff happens at home, like your child comes home stoned or your teenage child comes home drunk or what have you, you don't call the police mm. and you don't diagnose them. Yeah. You try to improvise a solution and you may get it wrong and you take a risk and you take responsibility. But when you're in care, if you do any of those things that happen more so on the outside, you're diagnosed, you're drugged, you're moved from one home to another, you're seen as a problem. It's a, it's a fascinating mess, the yeah. care system. So the way men and women, or rather girls and boys, are sort of socialised yes. tends to be the case that boys are sort of socialised, you know, boys don't cry, blah, 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 not really yes. supposed to show emotion in the same yes. way that it's sort of socially acceptable for girls to. Yes. So the primary outlet always seems to be sort of anger. Yes. That's what you're allowed. That's right. That's so great. you must have felt, as a young man, quite angry with your circumstances. Yes, I did. I, I feel like I've been through the stages of anger. Yeah. To, so like stages of heat to <laughs> sort of white heat, you know. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and, and it, it, I have been, I've been really angry. Really angry with others and then angry with myself and then angry through depression, then angry in relationships, angry with friendships. But that must be hard. Those must be very hard things to sort of navigate when your childhood has just been yeah. void of the sort of care and trust yeah. that you should have had. Yeah, you only have your own self, for example, really, right in your deep inner core. Empathy is a gift which we give to each other. It's a beautiful gift of humanity, really. But you can't know another person's experience or even thoughts yeah you know i can't know your you know your thoughts in any way you can insinuate or help me by by finding words to uh, bridge to me but i can't know you know uh, and and vice versa yeah. and so i've been angry but i think most of all with myself because i couldn't function i couldn't do what people do like I couldn't have a meal around a table with a family. I felt really, 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 it felt 
very scary. Like at 18, 19, 20, 21, oh, going all the way up to whenever, in the 30s maybe. Even now, I've, it's an unusual place. Mm. And that's just because that's not my experience. Mm. It never has been. Trust, you know, trusting is, is a big deal. And But like I say, it's my experience. And because I've not got anything to compare it with, it can be as visible as it is invisible. I can be as okay. It, maybe the boy thing, I've not looked at it like this, but is the, is the extreme thing. I'm either this or I'm that. I'm either depressed or I am super happy. I am the fixer or I am the breaker, you know. I think maybe the male anger comes from not knowing how to find compromise in oneself and, and, and feeling like if I can't fix it, then it's got to be broken, you know. If it isn't a struggle, then how am I about to survive it? I need something to survive. <laughs> you know what I mean? I need a fire to put out. <laughs> Look, a fire! You know, <laughs> it's like Superman, you know. Um, only visibly super when he's actually solving somebody else's, you know, thing, stuff. You know, <laughs> and yet, yet I lived amongst my own personal kryptonite, you know. So I think those extremes and the, the extreme less fluid way to find solutions to very big personal issues was something that I'd attempted. Anger at the end of the day, it will wait for you outside your own door. So yeah. you, know, you, you can say, I, you know, fuck you, or blah, 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 to the world. But, you know, you get up in the morning and you open the door and it's there. It's like, mm -hmm. well, you know, it's just me and you now, mate. And, and really, I came to that quite early on through not having a family. Mm. Sort of lucky, really, in weird ways. Because I didn't have anybody to blame. There was nobody that, where anything that I said would stick. Yeah. So when you were writing the book, and you're going back through all of those yeah. files, yeah. did that anger sort of come back to the fore? It's not anger now in that way. It's a deep sense of... Um, like a deep thud, you know, it's sort of like a reverberation, a kind of dark murmuration. I don't feel anger towards other people anymore. I feel it hurts me, you know, that's what happens. I get hurt. I'm done with anger for other people. The only thing that makes me really angry now is the relegation of responsibility. Yeah. People in positions of power who relegate responsibility as if it wasn't their fault. Yeah. That's where I am, I am at now. It's, and, it, and it's not an anger which is mm. male in that sort no, I of think that's, I think way. we all feel a lot of that at the moment. Yeah, <laughs> yes, but I mean in world, our personal yeah. not, but I, maybe I take, well, maybe it can be anything. It, mm. Actually, now I'm going to get mannish. I, I don't know whether this is mannish, but it can be the person behind the counter at the hotel who's like, who's giving me a script. Mm. And I'm like, yeah, but I've lost my keys. And they're like, well, you know, there's, you know, whatever. Mm. It can be it, uh, the relegation of responsibility. If you're not present now, yeah. do you know what I mean? Mm. And likewise with myself, I can be angry with myself for not being present now. You know, so the standards that I have for others, I have for myself. That could make me into quite an angry man because a lot of us are trying to relegate responsibility and just get on. <laughs> you know what I mean? The guy who's driving the bus wants to drive the bus. You get to the bus stop, he's already gone. He saw you, but he's gone. Deal with it. Mm. You know what I mean? 
the relegation of responsibility. But I think when it comes down to care and the care industries, you cannot say that you're going to be responsible for a human being and then relegate it. Do you know what I mean? So I think my anger is much more focused and much more um, defined and much more beautiful. Is it hard? I was wondering this earlier. Is it, I mean, A, is it boring? And B, is it hard to sit across from a, you know, well-intentioned liberal journalist sort of nodding their head sympathetically? Is it hard to keep going over the same story? Or is Um, it cathartic in any way? I think if it was cathartic, it would be a very dangerous habit to do this as my cathartic Mm. moment. Um, My cathartic process, I should say. I'm in this whether you're here or not. This is not a story for you. This is a story that is me. Yeah. It's very live. So you're on the river in -hmm. the boat and I'm a wave in that river. Or we can flip the metaphor if you like, I don't mind. I'll be the boat, you be the wave, whatever. And you're like having a chat with me, I'm going that way anyway. Mm-hmm. I think you're going that way anyway. So let's have a chat. It's, it's all good. Mm-hmm. It, this is not a, a construct for this interview. I am in this place now because I bought a flat over there because I won my court case and I could do that. Mm-hmm. And the man who was my barrister, who's chosen from my lawyer who's based in Leeds, whose name is David Greenwood, which is the name of my foster father, lives in that house there. I won the Penn Pinter Prize the other day. The Penn uh, Pinter Prize. Pinter lived over there. My name really does mean the question why, Mm. and I am a poet. This is not a shtick. Although, you know, you could say it is, because it's really who I am. And and I love talking about who I am. And... (laughs) Sorry. <laughs> Darling, I love talking about who I am. You know that thing, let's not talk about me, let's talk about you. What do you think of me? Yeah. You know, okay, yeah. all right. Oh, damn, so unoriginal of me. But I'm following whatever is my path, and I don't know what that is, mm. but I'm following it. I think you said at the event I saw you speaking at in the summer that you were a bit sort of anxious about how it's going to go down because your, your poetry is very personal but this is like super, super, super personal. How has that felt sort of putting it out there? Has, how's it gone down like the book? How's it been received? Oh my God! The book has been a Sunday Times number one bestseller and that's sales. Um, the amount of love that I get from people has been just incredible. I've had waves and waves of the stuff and um, last night a woman in western superman <laughs> gave me a poem and and it's just all about how she's broken from what is an abusive situation and she's i can say that i'm not saying who she is or whatever she's 62 and she says she's just pushed this piece of paper to me and i i, I read it and and then i put it in my kitchen because the last two lines were just so profoundly beautiful about breaking free of her own family. So I'm meeting a lot of people who have not been in care, but who have horrific times in their lives, who should have been in care. And, and, and just getting lots of love. I have people bringing me cakes, because there's a piece in my book about cakes. 
and I don't think I've experienced such a consolidation of warmth from a nation. It's beautiful. And also, you know, I came up in my career with Steve Coogan, John Thompson, Carolina Hearn to a degree, a whole swathe of, of comedians, singers in Manchester. And I knew that I had to, my story would, would have to take, have the attention. And that took me away from being the artist that I always wanted to be. So for me, it's a consolidation of lots of different things. Myself professionally, as well as myself personally. I could not have predicted that that would have happened. But just as much as Steve concentrated on his career, which he's... He's like a heat-seeking missile. Right, hasn't he? Yeah. yeah, but he's also he's always been that way, though. Mm. He's always been so precise. Same with Henry Normal as well, his other uh, half, really, of Baby Cow Productions. Incredibly precise mm. people. I have, I have done the same thing, but with my story. So our stories have sort of kind of gone different patterns, and they're coming together quite beautifully at the moment. When Steve did Philomena, mm. that was important to me because yeah, that... that the story... That mm. told everybody, the country, mm. the situation that my mum was born into. I knew that already, but the country didn't. No, I didn't really know. I knew that about the... Um, about the mother and baby homes. About, I knew about the, the Magdalene laundries yep, in Ireland, yep, yep. which is effectively what these places yep, are. It's that's right, that's thing. right, that's right. But we kind of, we go, oh, it's over there, all that brutal Catholicism yes. <laughs> stuff. Yes. We don't go, oh, hang on. I didn't know it's yep. sort of pretty widespread... Here. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it really, really was, and yeah. and, um, and so it's it, it's funny how art, you know, is so important to raise and change culture mm. and our understanding of our culture. So it takes an artist, a Philomena, a book, a Martin Sixsmith, a comedian from the north of England, to bring an issue that changes culture forever. I watched that film on a plane on my way back from Cuba my mate mm-hmm. on holiday mm-hmm. I took my headphones down and I just, I just started shouting on this because I'm so angry <laughs> I'm so fucking angry it's like alright mate just well, uh, but, chill out but, but you're right to be because this is the story of the women mm. so you talk about abuse of children in care or them not being seen by an institution mm. then you have to go further back in fact, it's not, it's not even that far to the women who were pregnant without a husband in a patriarchal society. And I don't say that in that... I don't know, I don't, I don't even like the word patriarchal because it's all very... It sounds very tidy. Mm. It's like, oh, yes, it is a patriarchal society. <laughs> uh, women need to smash the patriarchy. It just doesn't sound right somehow. Yeah. Okay. For me, as a man, sorry. But, see, I don't think that men should be feminists... That's interesting because I think other I know other people who think that. I'm not sure I agree, but yeah, but fair enough. I know a woman who set up a brilliant NGO, mm-hmm. uh, social enterprise for women. Now this woman is a big old multi multi millionaire, mm. and and it works. So let's say it's uh, women bus drivers. There should be more women bus drivers in London. So she goes to let's say Torquay. And they go, oh my gosh, this is a great idea. Getting women to be bus drivers. I've seen how you've done it in London. It's great. If you can do that for men here as well, 
that would be brilliant. So can we get your, your social enterprise to work here? And she takes that, that job and takes that task. But what they have done by doing that is taking away the central reason for her organisation's being, right? It was there for a reason that, that they had women bus drivers in London. She had a reason to do that. It wasn't uh, to help the working classes. It was to help women in particular for a particular reason. It happens with kids in care. You say, you know, I'd like to do this thing for kids in care, and somebody says, well... Well, why don't you do that for homeless kids as well? That'd be great. And suddenly, it doesn't become about the very specific issues of the kids in care. So she, so she's doing this enterprise for Torquay for boys uh, because she's done it in there for her, and that's what they wanted. But there's been a subtle shift and change of emphasis. And actually, what is her reason for being able to do it for those boys? I know that I mean, you know, it's feminists that have done great things for me as a man. But I just noticed that as she tried to expand this social enterprise, its central core was taken away really quickly. I think that when men become feminists, they start to try to own the narrative of Make what feminism... Yes! No. Which is classically what we've done. And yeah, I think it's yeah. the same with a lot of inequality, yeah. even when it's, it's the nature of charity for working-class people, middle-class people you know, run the charities and suddenly there is a separation between them and the person that they're serving and there becomes a sort of, it's worse than patronising effect that happens within the giving of charity. Mm. I mean, that's... Sort of like the comic relief hoo-ha that's been about in the last couple of years. And comic relief started with, and is still got so many good intentions. Of course. Yeah, yeah. But the narrative and a lot of money's is raised, yeah, is them and us. Not necessarily that helpful anymore, or should have progressed a bit in the last 30 years. It's them and us, yeah. and, and changing narrative. Sometimes it's easier to raise money than it is to change narrative. Mm. So you raise the money, but if the narrative doesn't change, then the money can be used in ways which, again, is a, it sets up a them and us mentality. Mm. It's a great play on at the National Theatre called Faith, Hope and Charity by a playwright called Alexander Zeldin. Just looks at all of this um, this thing. And I think that the most precious thing about a movement is the narrative. It is the story that the movement tells itself, the reason it was there, the changes that it can therefore make. And the purer that narrative stays, the more the change, substantial the change will be. And that's not about separatism. Women are not separate from it. We're all on the same earth. But we do have potentially slightly different needs. And that's okay. Yeah, And they absolutely. should all be... For, absolutely, absolutely. And I think that yeah. we as men can be of assistance when called to be of assistance. But I think that when we start to call ourselves feminists, personally, I think this, I know lots of women don't agree with me and lots of men don't agree with me, but we start to, unbeknownst to ourselves, which is the nature of the problem in the first place, start to kind of try to own and control the narrative. I don't trust men. Do you trust women? More so. That doesn't make me better with women. I'm just saying that I trust women more so. Why is that? It's a mistake. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it could yeah, be. No, no, yeah, no, no, it is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there's, women can be as untrustworthy as Absolutely, men can be. Yeah. It's a mistake, but mm. it's a mistake that I'm, I'd rather make with women than I would with men. Why is that? I have mammy issues. <laughs> <laughs> it's a nice, complicated animal, isn't it, this? 
and I don't know how to unpack that or what I will find, but it is women that have kind of, uh, as a general thing, saved my sort of world. It's also women that have hurt me more, Yeah. actually. You know, so they've done both. Mm. I just... Men, I'm not as cool with men, and I should be. I think a man, it's good for a man to be cool with men. It's good for everyone to be cool with men. No, I know, I know, I know, but I sometimes, you know, I don't trust women who only get on with men. No, I don't. Exactly, exactly. And I don't trust men who only get on with Mm. women or only espouse to get on with women. Yeah, no, I wouldn't. If a woman's like, oh, I just... I just get on really well with men. Just don't get on with women that yeah, well. Yeah, I know. You've got it's to like, ask yourself, are you warning signals? Yeah, because they're your your people, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the ones yeah, you have the shared experiences yeah. with. Hey there! In case you missed our last London show on International Men's Day, which sold out humble brag and in case you can't make it to our Newcastle show on January the 12th which has also sold out humble brag you may be interested to know that we have another gig our final gig of the year in fact on December the 11th at King's Place in London and we're going to be joined by she of Psychoville back to life and episodes fame the fantastic Daisy Haggard and also Tiff Stevenson to complete the lineup. So that's fantastic news. So get yourself a ticket for that and maybe get everyone you know a ticket for it as well for a uh, lovely little Christmas present. That's right, give the gift of lols. You can do that by checking out our website www.standardissuepodcast.com. So your mum and dad are Ethiopian. Yes. And you were brought up for the first 12 years of your life in a white family in Lancashire. Yeah, I was the only black in the village. And then, I don't know if there was any more diversity in the care system, but I'm guessing at that time, probably not. No, definitely not. I was brought up in the villages of Lancashire, Lilliputian villages of Lancashire, Mm. in the 70s and early 80s. And there were no other black people. I didn't meet a black person until I was about nine. I didn't know a black person until I was about 16. People only call themselves by their colour, by the way, when they're in the minority. So as I travel now to Ethiopia, as I will in a month, people don't call themselves by their colour there. But yeah, I didn't see anybody of colour as a child, just occasionally a kind of somebody passing on a buzz or a... One television presenter, Trevor, Trevor MacDonald or Floella Benjamin. It didn't really matter that my foster parents were white. It does matter if they're racist. Did you feel they were racist? Racism, like sexism, mm. is not a spoken language. That's just the end game. My foster parents fostered me because they wanted to save a poor black baby from darkest Africa. Their image of Africa was one of uh, destitution and deviance, darkness. So this is a racism which is unspoken much of the time, but it leaks out. So yeah, no, it was racism. But they didn't, for example, there's a a story in the book about your foster mum combing your hair oh, God. and using like a sort of using like the wrong comb basically and she would comb it until your scalp was bleeding and yeah. it, it, 
it's a horrible story. But then Errol Brown from uh, Hot Chocolate gives you your first <laughs> Africa. <laughs> yes, introduced kind of by amazing. introduced by my foster mother. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, racism, like sexism, has an utter duality to it. In that the person that is sexist is also dependent on the person that they're sexist towards. Yeah. And in this case, my, in terms of racism, my mother was dependent on on a person from another race. Mm. I mean, part of the reason for both sexism and racism is that the anger that the sexist or racist has for the fact that they are actually utterly connected to the person who is another race I mean totally good chance in your future you know that one generation will marry into another mm. another um, uh, race what impact did that have on you in terms of sort of finding your identity as an adult so I went through the same thing that like some women go through not all I'm doing this deliberately by the way okay. but, I, but I do think there are parallel lines in the behaviour between sexism and racism and maybe course, any otherism yeah. but they're wonderfully parallel mm. so for example if a woman walks into a room full of all men most of the men will react to the fact that there's one woman in the room in some way shape or form mm. some of the men will deliberately not react to the woman mm. thinking that that is how they should be some of the men will come up to her and say listen I know there's only one of you here you know you'll be alright love just, just walk behind me, I'll get you a drink at the bar. Yeah. You know, some of them will try to dazzle her with their personality, their kindness, their openness, their, yeah. their blah, and some of them will want to, to, to conquer her, yeah. you know, to make her like them and feel at ease. Mm. And to try, by the way, it's got nothing to do with her now. They'll be conquering her over the other men that are there. Yeah. That's the issue. So everyone will react in some way, shape or form to the fact that there is only one woman in the room. Mm. And her reaction to any of their different behaviours will be judged by them as to who she is. Yeah, it will be her problem. Not exactly. Not yeah. she's not an entity in herself. Yeah, she is whatever her reaction is to them. Yeah. Same with race. So I was the one black person in a room. Everybody would react to me in some way, shape, or form. Some would spit at my back. Some would try to really befriend me, like in a I really big way, like to totally take me home yeah. with them so that they could introduce me to their family. Yeah. You know, some would ignore me. You know, some would uh, bang into me. They couldn't find a way of speaking to me, so they would bang into me, knock my drink over. Mm. Some would think, what are you looking at? You know, so all of these different sort of uh, reactions to compensate for other people's insecurities were what I faced on a daily basis. And by the way, these were people that, that were my people as well. That was the weird thing about it. And that's what must be weird about it. As a woman, you're like, aren't we all here together? You know. And I also think that there's another parallel, and it's that when a girl becomes a woman, whatever that means, she must realise at some point, oh, it's different for boys. Yeah there must be a point in her head where she goes, oh my God, if he wants that, my brother, if he wants that, he just has got to do these things. But if I want that, I've got to travel a totally different terrain to get to the same place that he's got mm. the same thing. And that that must happen at a particular point in a girl's development 
Because up until that point, she thought, oh, well, we're all the same, we just do X, Y, and Z. I think most of the women I know, like growing up in the sort of, being a teenager in the 90s, yeah. so things had obviously like progressed a fair bit mm-hmm. by that point. Mm-hmm. I mean, they did treat us differently. I grew up with two older brothers, and I was the youngest and the only girl. Mm-hmm. They did treat us differently, but I didn't really notice it at the time. It wasn't until, and a lot of my friends sort of say the same thing, I didn't actually really notice that sexism was a thing until I was about 30. Wow. Because when you're at a point where you might sort of feasibly leave work to go and have a kid, you notice that things are different. Because then you're like, why isn't she getting a promotion? Why has she, like, got this shitty job? Like, why is this happening? Why is that happening? Oh, shit, it's because they're women and they think they might go and have a kid and so, like, what's the point of giving them a promotion? Or, like, blah, blah, blah. And then once you see it, you're like, oh, actually, it's everywhere. It's the reason why my parents treated my brothers like this, or blah, blah, blah. It's why this is happening. But then you can't unsee it. You can't unsee it. Yeah. And that's actually in my book, The Unseen, that I couldn't unsee somebody taking the the bag closer to themselves when I'm at a bus stop or people not sitting next to me when I was on the bus. Yeah. Or, you know. But I think actually there is a correlation. Yeah. Whatever time it happens, whether mm. it is in your 30s or whether in your teenage years, that the entire landscape changes and you s- suddenly see the constructs that have been put in place and that are accepted by the wide majority mm. to actually keep the status quo, quo which includes the uh, driven narrative from the patriarchy. <laughs> you have to use that word. I saw the parallel equivalent in race when a man at work, when I was 22 and he, I was a development worker in literature, and he said, oh, he said, oh, so this would be 89, 90. He said, um, you're lucky because you, you, you've got race. You know, you've got something, you've got a story, you've got a, you can be cool on this, you know. And it was, I was like, you're just so far from yeah. seeing what it is that I have to deal with. Because for him, again, it was a shtick. And there are men today who will think the same thing of sexism. Mm. You know, it's a shtick. It's a t- something for a young woman to hold on to, to form some sense of herself. And that is actually quite a believable narrative by people in power. You mm. know, it's very... Between them, they can quite easily believe that. And in fact, worse still, they can convince the people who are understanding the oppressions around them mm. that they might be mad. I feel like I have this argument with people who I know not to be racist or sexist, just they're white men, so they don't get it. You might say something is, is racist or sexist or whatever... And they'll be like, oh, well, that's ridiculous. What are they so upset about? You know, that, oh, that's a bit sort of pick your battles kind of thing. Like, that's not that important, is it? So the Me Too thing, the guy on, I can't remember who it was, the guy on um, Graham Norton who was sitting next to the woman and he kept, like, putting his hands on her upper thigh during the thing. And he obviously didn't mean anything by it. Yeah. But so I go to work... I do a bit of like sports journalism as well, so I'd go and do that, and the men are like, oh, it's a woman, let's ask her what she thinks about women things. Um, that happens quite a lot. That's, left another, that's another thing. Yeah. The relegation of responsibility. So they're like, so do that thing about the Graham Norton thing, what do you think about that? Do you think, like, you know, 
Well, do you think everyone should be like making a fuss about it? Like, well, do you think it would be weird if we're sitting here and you just put your hand on my upper thigh? Do you think that would be weird? He was like, yes, that would be really weird. I was like, okay, because why? So, do you think it's weird that this guy did this to her like live on TV? Do you think that's weird? He's like, oh, I suppose maybe that is a bit weird. So the point is. You may not understand this thing to be like offensive or whatever, but that's because you don't experience it. So if someone else who does experience it is telling you that's actually quite offensive or I don't really like that or there's connotations or, or whatever it may be, you should just listen to them and say, okie doke, got it. It's, it's not for you to decide if I as a woman should be offended by something or not. And that is a really frustrating conversation to continue to sort of keep having to have. See, I feel... That's quite long-winded. So. No, it was a great example, actually, because whereas you, you might feel that that is... or somebody might feel that that is not necessarily a sexist reaction for somebody to question whether that was or wasn't sexism. No, I didn't the, think the he was being sexist. Yes, but, but, but for me... Mm. Not listening mm. is actually one of the biggest traits of sexism. Yes, absolutely. You know, so yeah. if you can't hear a black man speak without thinking that, well, it's a bit aggressive, the fact that he's quite angry about that racist thing, he says it's racist, <laughs> but now he's being aggressive and angry, you know, etc., etc. Because that's the next level mm. of the of thinking... Of, well, if of, you're a woman, you're hysterical. Yeah. So to me... You know, the hand on the knee is visible mm. sexism, which is a, a warning flag, etc., etc. Fine. Mm. But actually, the more pernicious, and actually, I think the more dangerous sexism is the not being able to listen to somebody mm. say that's sexism. Because it obviously is. Mm. And to not listen to it, you have to have gone through various processes of denial which you're not even aware of yourself. Mm. This is, to me, this is where sexism and racism is at its most dangerous. And this is why you find people in institutions doing overtly, seemingly racist and sexist things and thinking, well, I'm not sexist. Mm. Do you know what I mean? I was just putting my hand on a knee in the office. Mm. I mean, guy did it on TV the other night on Graham Norton. So we're talking about degrees towards... Physical rape at one end, hand on the leg at another end. The, the more that you let get away with, the closer acceptable yeah. behaviour comes towards rape, which is both emotional, physical and mental. It's entitlement, isn't it? It's the idea that, so this guy... Entitlement, yeah. ...is not going to... He doesn't mean anything by it. He's yeah. not going to do anything to this woman. But the fact that he feels so comfortable, so entitled to just, you know... Yeah. Put his hands on her in quite yeah. an intimate way yeah. as well. Yes. Just feels totally yes. comfortable it's doing never, that it's without never... even thought of it. Yeah. Is to me, well, that's quite alarming. Yes. The entitlement absolutely. to her physical space. Okay, so we have the same entitlement regarding race. Oh, sorry, parallel behavior, because mm. they're not, they're from different roots. But the actual behavior is about power, and I think it's actually very very similar behaviour, not as widespread in terms of uh, sexism, because sexism is one more widespread than, than racism. Just to make this really clear, is that this isn't to stop racism or sexism as much as it is, equally, 
to be a better human being, man. Yeah. <laughs> and to have a better life. <laughs> and to get on with more people. And to be able to teach your children how to live. And etc. etc. It's like, if you teach somebody to be, not anti-racist, but to be able to, you know, accept other races. And accept the fact that you can't understand everything and that you can learn from everybody. Oh my God, you're giving a gift to your children. You're giving a gift to your friends. Mm. And a gift, most importantly, to yourself. This whole idea of like, oh, God, blooming anti-racist, anti-sexist, what's that all about? You blah, blah, blah. I'm like, no, it's, this is not what that's about. This is about how to be a better human and live a better, more fun, more open, more experiential life. Done with people um, flipping the script on me that, that it's in the negative. It's actually the absolute opposite. Yeah, it's kind of like just based level humanity <laughs> yeah and, it, and it's, and it's, it's not hard to grasp it's, it's yeah. actually really easy to yeah. laugh with uh, an Asian shopkeeper where I grew up Asian shopkeepers got so much shtick mm. and they weren't actually a lot of them were Ugandan African Asians actually but just learning like two words of the language like acha which means uh, okay or yes <laughs> and being able to say it at some point or asking somebody how can I say something I once asked the son of a shopkeeper who lived around the corner from me in Manchester who made me biryani just like this Turkish deli that we're sat in right now gives me this room and says yeah you can just go and I got him tickets to go see Orhan Pamuk at the um, South Bank once and, and you form friendships or you form relationships and it's such a gift for you I mean, can you imagine like living a life where you're just frightened of all of the races? It's yeah. got to be, it's got to be like, like locked in syndrome. Or living a life where you hate the other gender or any other gender. <laughs> and I said to him, tell me something to say to your mum in Urdu, which is the language of the people of Pakistan, that, that she'll really like. And he said, And and I was like, oh, thanks, man. And I went to his mum and I said, I'll stop this story for a second and tell you that I was visiting a lot of schools at the time, mm -hmm. doing, doing workshops and, and, and assemblies and poetry and what have you. And I would tell them, and I would say, to, if it was a big mixed Asian school, mainly mm -hmm. from Pakistan, I'd say, you know, so this is what he said. And I know that this means, hello, how, how are you? And I hope you are well. I'm really, you know, happy to be here, something like that. Mm. And I'd say that to all the kids, and I'd say, and I'll, I'm now going to tell you what this young boy told me that I told to his mum. Very worried. And I say this to the whole school. And all the kids, oh my God, the look on their faces, yeah. the Asian kids, they're like, and then they're looking at each other. And I go, and I look out at them, and I go, yeah, 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 exactly. It means, it means, I hope you are well, and I'm going to say it again to you. And the kids are like, they're looking at each other, like, in shock. Some of them are laughing. Some of them are laughing. I've never told this story before, and I'm not sure I can tell it now. But I think it's really funny. And when I said it to his mum in the shop, his mum just smiled meekly and said, do you want cigarettes? Yeah. <laughs> now, to end this story, two things. One is that you know what it means. And remember, I'd learned it. So I'd gone home and got met Ikalabandara. And my friend told me what it meant. And the kids in the school that I do it to think that I don't know what it means. Yeah. 
And it's just beautiful to watch their faces. Because their faces are, are like, oh my God, does he know what he's just said? I don't think we can say what he's just said. So I've got all of the teachers who don't speak Urdu mm. looking at me going, what have you just said? I've got the, the Asian kids going, I know what he said, and I can't tell the white kids who are my friends, but I can't tell them what he said. Yeah. So I know that I'm only talking to those kids in Pakistan, in, in the school, in the, the Pakistani kids in school. I know that the mother knows, and she's mortified, and I'm not sure I can tell you what it is. It's, it's actually really funny. I mean, the fact that this little tyke, and he was, basically, he was a kid who did a lot of translating for his mum, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and sort of, like, was older than his years. Like, a lot of Asian kids are, or a lot of kids whose parents speak, you know, a certain language, and especially parents from rural areas abroad, whether it's Poland or, or Africa. But, but, but what I do with the kids in the schools, I go, I stop, and I go, I know exactly what it means. And they all go, oh. and the teachers go, oh my God, what was it? And I leave it at that. I asked him, the 12-year-old, to tell me something that was not, hello, I hope you are well. Because I wanted to see his mum laugh. And actually, I learned a great linguistic language sort of trick then, which is that the moment you break into somebody's language, they just wake up to you in a way which they don't in any other way. Mm. It's like, you know, dropping the odd bonjour when you're in France. Exactly, it? You know, exactly. It goes a long way. It, it really it does genuinely go a long does. Way. Even if you do it in a really terrible accent, yeah. as I would. Well, people love that as well, though. There's something nice about it, you know. So what are you up to next? What's, what's going right on? Right now? Yeah. Okay. Well, not like today. I mean, like, in general. <laughs> like, what have you got coming up? Got by me shopping. I'm doing an Imagine for BBC with Alan Yentob. And so they are now, right as we speak, both editing the television documentary and also diving into past my past and they're coming to Ethiopia with me in a, a month. In a few days I'll be in Australia to do a set of gigs. I'm finishing off a Radio 4 series called Lemsisay's Social Enterprise. My name is Y is available now. Yes it is. Yeah it's a great Christmas yeah. Christmas book. Published by Canongate. And it's it's amazing. It's really, really worth a read so I hopes that people will go and pick it up. Where can we follow you? I'm at Lemsisay and uh, on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and there's only one person with my name in the world so I'm not difficult to find if you want to find me. Lem, thank you so much. Thank you Jen, it's been a, a 19 year interlude Yeah. between last time we spoke. Great stuff. Hello, Hannah here. Just wanted to let you know that if you like what we do, you can help us by rating and reviewing us on iTunes. It really does help, especially if you give us five stars. Did that sound threatening enough? Give us five stars. Standard Issue for All Women.